Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Martin Arnold, the FT's banking editor. Joining me in the studio is Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. We'll also be talking to Patrick Jenkins, our financial editor, and Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, who are at the FT European Financial Forum in Dublin. We'll also hear from Alistair Gray, the US banking correspondent in New York. This week, we'll be catching up with the big themes from the FT's European Financial Forum in Dublin, And we'll be discussing news that UK banks were hit by a serious cyber attack that caused systems to go down at Lloyd's Banking Group. And finally, we'll take a look at how US banks are starting to acknowledge the threat from financial technology groups. So starting with this week's FT European Financial Forum, which is a one-day event in Dublin bringing together international and Irish industry leaders, policymakers, regulators and experts to discuss the state of the financial services industry... One of the speakers there was Noreen Doyle, who's vice chairman of Credit Suisse and chairman of the British Bankers Association. She spoke to Patrick about Brexit and the announcement by several banks last week that they plan to move operations and staff out of the City of London, which followed swiftly on the heels of Theresa May's speech detailing the UK government plans. Was this the result of bubbling anger coming out over Brexit? No, I I don't think it was bubbling anger. I think it was a reflection of the amount of planning that has been going on since mid-2016 across the industry. And with some clarity provided by the Prime Minister, we have a better understanding of what the end stage may look like. And I think any announcements that were made were a reflection of knowing a bit more of where we are on the continuum between what we have now and what we're going to get. So is it time to start pressing the button on contingency plans then? Is that what's happening? You know, it will vary from bank to bank and from product cluster to product cluster. And I think all of the banks are in the mode of looking at individual businesses and then what the likely effect will be. So I think you'll see gradual decisions being made over the course of 2017 while we get increased clarity on what end state will look like, what the new partnership between the EU and the UK will look like. And for Credit Suisse, where are you on that continuum? Have you started enacting anything? We have started looking at what our options are. We have operations in other parts of the EU, so we're examining those, and you know we're in the continuing study phase that started in 2016. Because some banks have begun to say in private that by the end of the first quarter... Therefore, before we know what shape negotiations are going to take, they're going to have to start taking decisions about actual jobs and operations. Again, I think it depends upon what business lines you have concentrated in in London versus where you'd like to be if London is not a member of the EU. Now, Patrick and Laura, you've both been at the conference today. What did you make of Mrs Doyle's comments there? Well, it's been a fascinating morning, actually, here in Dublin. 
at this uh, conference, as you say, organised jointly by the FT and IFS Ireland. Noreen Doyle was pretty thoughtful, raised a lot of issues, a lot of focus actually on Trump by her and by other delegates here. And I suppose pragmatism, really, concern about the protectionist tendencies in the Trump presidency that we've seen so far. But I think still a resolute kind of optimism about what it means for financial services. I should say one of the most interesting contributions came from Philip Hildebrand, the former Swiss central banker who is now vice chairman of BlackRock, who was very upbeat, at least cautiously upbeat, about European banks which, of course, have seen a surge in their valuations in the wake of Trump, although they're still close to record low valuations in some cases and a long way from the giddy heights of the Goldman Sachs and JP Morgans of the world. But he expressed what he called a real upside surprise potential in Europe, both at a macro level in terms of the growth outlook and as a result of that for banks, if they could get their act together in terms of their capital strength. And the other proviso was if the French-German axis for the European project, as he called it, was refreshed through a positive election outcome in France. Well, that's a relief from all the doom and gloom you normally hear about the European banking sector. Thanks, Patrick. Laura, you, I think, have been talking to Jim Cowles, who is the head of Citigroup's European operations. What was he talking about? Is it Brexit again? Yeah, we had more Brexit from Jim Cole, so he gave us a partial update in terms of where City is at and its planning. He said the bank has already been speaking to regulators in Ireland, Italy, France, Spain, Germany and the Netherlands about how it might organise itself in the aftermath of Brexit. They haven't made a decision yet, but they expect to make a decision in the first half of this year. He said pretty much every bank will have to make a decision in that time frame because it'll take two years effectively to get the new entities up and running. In City's case, they are weighing 25 different issues when it comes to every jurisdiction. So they have a list of 25 criteria, and that does show you how complex this whole thing is for them. Did he say exactly what they're deciding on moving? Is it their European headquarters? Is it huge amounts of jobs? Is it merely a licensing question? What sort of scale are we talking about? He didn't give any detail in terms of the number of jobs. I mean, across all the banks, we broadly expect about a fifth of their headcount in the UK, somewhere between one and 2,000 people. In terms of what they're looking for, the main issue for a city is if they need to have a new broker-dealer, which is where they do the trading business from. That's a bit more complex because it's a very complex business line. And while we heard from the Central Bank of Ireland that they are not going to restrict any kind of business line, it'll probably take them more time to get that license. Um, it would have taken them to get the retail banking license. So we heard from Kurt Street earlier, and they have part of their investment bank in Ireland. It took them two years to get that license through, and that's only a small part of the broker-dealer business. So it really is a very complex process, which will take quite some time. Okay. Well, thanks, Patrick and Laura, and enjoy the rest of the conference. So now turning to Lloyd's and the cyber threat to banking, which took another menacing step forward in recent weeks after it emerged that the reason some of Lloyd's services went down for, I think, a couple of days was because of a massive denial of service cyber attack. Is that right, Emma? You've reported on this. Tell us exactly what happened and how widespread this was. Nearly a couple of weeks ago, a number of customers took to Twitter and other forms of social media to complain that they were having issues accessing their Lloyds bank account online. 
There were also customers of Bank of Scotland, Halifax and other Lloyds banking group brands that had similar problems. So Lloyds replied at the time saying that indeed services had been temporarily affected, but that if customers attempt to log in again, they might be able to access their accounts. This issue lasted for more than a couple of days, but Lloyds emphasised that this was an intermittent problem and that their services weren't completely down over two days. It's since emerged, as the FT uncovered, that actually there was a widespread distributed denial of service attack that was launched by an overseas criminal group. The attack was actually launched against most of the UK banks, but it seemingly only affected Lloyd's banking group. And TSB, right? I was about to say, actually, uh, TSB was carved out of Lloyd's in 2013, but the bank is still reliant upon Lloyd's banking systems, and therefore some of their customers were affected as well. So a denial of service attack is where a website is hit with lots of traffic from a criminal group or cyber attackers with the aim of bringing it down. And this is what happened in the case of Lloyd's. It's since emerged that Lloyd's attempted to combat this using a technique called geo-blocking, which is where they drop a portcullis over the server from where the attack is being launched. The attackers then move to a different server location, and it's essentially a bit of a cat-and-mouse game as Lloyd's attempt to deal with this issue. So they counter-attacked, it sounds like, but with limited success. Ultimately, though, I guess what customers care about most, and regulators as well, was, was any money lost? customers? No money was lost. It was more of a service inconvenience. And obviously, this has a degree of reputational impact for the bank. Although I should add that all of the banks defend on a daily basis these uh, so-called denial of service attacks. And it's only every now and then that one comes in. But this follows sort of hot on the heels of Tesco Bank, admittedly a very different case insofar as that was a cyber heist and some 9,000 customers lost about £2.5 million collectively, which forced Tesco Bank to issue a refund. And obviously, this is now an issue that's being scrutinised by the regulators. So you've got the National Cyber Security Centre, which was launched last year as an offshoot of GCHQ, looking into the issue. And you also have the Financial Conduct Authority having a look at the issue as well. One thing that people always want to know in these cases is who was behind it. And I think a bit more detail on who might have been behind it has emerged since our story was published. What's that about? Yes, so we were told that it was an overseas criminal group. There has since emerged a report online on a website called Motherboard that an individual hacker in fact contacted this website claiming to have been the attacker against Lloyd's. And he or she claimed there were weaknesses within Lloyd's systems and services that the attacker was able to exploit and in return demanded £75,000 in the form of Bitcoin as a ransom. Wow, OK, but that wasn't paid, presumably. From what we understand, it wasn't paid, according to the website. OK, thanks very much, Emma. Finally, switching our focus across the Atlantic to the US, we'll hear how financial technology has long threatened to upend the banking sector. But the interesting question is how do mainstream banks view this competition? David Stolin, Professor of Finance at Toulouse Business School, has been trawling through filings from US banks and found that they've only recently begun to make formal disclosures to investors about the risks posed by financial technology groups. He spoke to Alistair Gray to discuss the findings, and Alistair started by asking why banks have only just started disclosing this risk now. Why it's happening now, I think like in many such things, they are required to disclose important risks. But at the same time, it's not quite clear exactly which risks they have to disclose. So in a way, it's 
uh, you're kind of wait for someone to go first. Are these disclosures just kind of boilerplate legal mumbo jumbo, frankly, or do they actually tell us anything useful about banks and their attitude towards fintech? That's quite interesting, actually, what's happening there. So we have 14 banks, these 14 pioneering banks that stick their neck out and say, yes, fintech is competing with and, us. And so among them, actually, some of the biggest in the country, like JP Morgan, for instance. Yes. So JP Morgan is actually one of seven banks, half the banks in their sample. They simply list fintech among other types of competitors. So they don't really say more than just, well, we uh, compete against. Right. Then there are three banks actually go a little bit beyond that. And they, they say a few, a few words about fintech. They say it offers competition and payments and lending space. So nothing we don't really know. Then there are two banks that stress maybe less commonly appreciated aspects of competing with uh, with fintech, where they say the fact that, that you're competing with fintech can make you more vulnerable to cyber attacks, or that it also means competing for qualified personnel. And then there are these two banks that actually arguably say what investors would want them to say, and that's, you know, what are you doing about fintech? How does it threaten you and what are you doing about fintech? And basically, they're saying that fintech is important and we're monitoring the situation, we're evaluating potential partnerships. And those two banks are Huntington Bank in Columbus, Ohio, which is the first bank to mention fintech. And the other one is actually the smallest bank in this sample, Hamilton Bank in Baltimore. And what's quite interesting is it's a very small bank. It's a few hundred million dollars in assets, but it has one thing in common with Huntington Bank of Ohio. And that's that it also, shortly before the filing, acquired another regional rival, which is a bit smaller and with which it coexisted or competed for over 100 years. Do you think fundamentally this stuff matters? Does anyone actually <laughs> read all this stuff? There is very interesting research by Lauren Cohen and colleagues at Harvard that look at changes in these 10K filings. And they find that actually there is enormous inertia. You don't really want to change text in those filings. For many years, it will have the same text. But when the text does change, it tends to send a quite strong signal. And often it tends to be bad news. And uh, and they find you can actually make something like 10% per year by shorting the companies that have changes and going long in companies that do not have. Oh, really? Certainly what goes into those reports, there are important signals in that. And in this case, the signal is that someone at the company actually is taking fintech seriously enough because it's presumably it's not just a question of saying yes we compete with fintech it also means that if we are competing with fintech we also have to have some contingencies some plans in place what we actually are going to be doing about this even if you don't talk about this in the filing the fact that you know the board members sign off on this document that says that fintech is an important threat for us it is itself a meaningful signal so in a way that's yet another way that fintech has sort of come of age this year all right professor well uh, it sounds that you might have been giving hedge funds some trading ideas with all that thanks very much indeed for joining us thank you very much That's it for this week. All that's left to do is to thank Emma, Patrick, Laura and Alistair for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye.